I'm willing to put the effort in, willing to put the work in, willing to take the shots on goal to do that. But none of those work out unless you have people that that have a vested interest in in you and what you're doing and, yes. and, and where you're going with that. And some of those people were coworkers of mine. Some of those people had absolutely nothing to do with the businesses I was in, but, but just took an interest in me for whatever reason. Um, and I try to hopefully, uh, you know, if I had a chance and continue to have chances to pay that back. Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. I'm Bela Musitz, the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University in upstate New York. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. This podcast is about conversations with successful entrepreneurs you've never heard of who have built successful businesses you have never heard of. Businesses and entrepreneurs that we can all identify with. In each episode, I think we try to capture and share the essence of how interesting people often take unconventional paths to build their businesses. So we decided to interview a wide range of business people that have found and taken unconventional paths in their careers. And what we hope to do is capture some lessons, advice, inspiration that'll help you attain your entrepreneurial goals. So join us for interesting conversations and discussions with what we think are really inspiring guests on how you can ignite your business by exploring some of the many less traveled unconventional paths that lie ahead. So if you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a review on your favorite podcasting application. If you have suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, Mike. It's Bela here. This week, uh, we have John Kokosha a partner at Arista Strategies and a person who's got a really wide, diverse background of large company experience, entrepreneurial company experience, the whole gamut. So I thought there's a lot of good uh, learning things from him. What was one part of the conversation with John that struck you, Mike? Well, you know, I always like talking to VCs, Bela, and that's one of the reasons why I like you so much. People who are in the venture capital world see so much from all aspects, all angles. And you'll hear, I think, how he puts together these different views of businesses. He's not just a siloed or a single function person. I like the idea where you'll hear him talk about the importance of team, but talk about it in terms of shared values and shared ethics rather than raw intelligence or technical know-how. And then the third thing I think might be interesting for people, and I think a good takeaway, is this idea of differentiation um, as technology and as your as your and in your business model. What are you doing that's different than competitors? Why are you asking? Are people going to choose? Are customers going to choose your product or service over uh, competitors? And I think that as people start to think about, do I want to take a different career path? I think this idea of differentiating yourself in terms of your skills and experiences and how you present yourself is something that can be a really nice takeaway. So those are the three things I think to focus on. Yeah, excellent. I think I think those are good, Mike. The other thing that struck me is this notion of the difference between selling a product and providing a solution for your customer. 
I thought he gave a great example of that. And we'll talk about all of these a little bit more at, uh, at our summary after we listen to the interview. And before we dive into that, uh, first of all, let me thank uh, Clarkson University and Munster in Germany for their support for this podcast. And again, if you have any comments, feel free to email us at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And also tell your friends, we'd love to uh, increase our listenership. So if you like what you hear, spread the good word around. So let's dive into our interview and conversation with John, and then we'll be back at you with uh, some additional comments. Hi, today I'm here with John Kokosha, Managing Partner at Arista Strategy Group. Hello, John, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Baylor. Thank you for having me. Sure. So one of the ways I like to start this is talk a little bit about where you grew up and your background. So if you could just go on that a little bit. Sure. So I grew up uh, just north of New York City, a little town called Cold Spring. It was a Norman Rockwell-type town right on the Hudson River, one streetlight, kind of a, uh, I would say, a, a blue-collar town. My folks were, my mom was first-generation American, my dad was second-generation, and, um, you know, we had a nice, normal, what I would say, middle-class life, but always had an interest in things, technology, and then realized after I went to school that I also had an interest in all things business as well, and so was lucky enough that I went to RPI, undergrad, mechanical engineer, had some ever-increasing responsibility roles at Ford and then another company called Amphenol and then ultimately went back for my MBA and kind of switched to the dark side and, and got into investments and business and other things like yeah, that. Yeah, so, we're going to dive into all of those uh, a little bit more. So any uh, history of entrepreneurship or small business ownership in your family? Not Well, so the answer is yes. I mean, on my mom's side, they were farmers, right? So, you know, it was uh, in post-war Europe and that's where she grew up before coming over here. But on my dad's side, his dad owned uh, a construction company in Peekskill, New York, and was pretty well known because of uh, the work that he did during the Depression era and some of the federal contracts and things of that nature. But it turns out my, my grandmother actually had a more interesting entrepreneurial venture, which was, was ostensibly about having boarders in the house. They rented out all the bedrooms they could to a lot of the guys that worked for my grandfather. But we found out years later that she also had a pretty decent bootlegging business where she was making bathtub gin and selling it to the boarders and making more money on that. And she actually ended up paying the mortgage off uh, in the middle of the Depression uh, with uh, with the work that she was doing. So she would cook their dinner, wash their clothes and sell them their booze. So. Wow. Wow. So there is so there is this history of entrepreneurship. So when you were growing up and, and, and you were, you know, in high school or junior high, did you think about having your own business or were those thoughts different? Was it in the ionosphere of your house? It, it wasn't only because my my dad was really a, you know, he, worked, he was a 30-year General Motors guy. He was, uh, you know, get your degree, work hard, and you'll do fine. So there was never this, I mean, he, the only stock he ever owned was General Motors. And he was a child of the Depression, and there was a distrust generally of the capital markets. There was a distrust generally of, of, of those types of things. And so we never, you know, it was just kind of work hard and, and you learn your, your keep. And so, I mean, I had a job since I was 13, whether it was landscaping or mowing lawns or working in, working in a restaurant or whatever. You know, I've, I've been working since then, and it was those values okay. that were instilled. But it was never really an entrepreneurial yeah, yeah. 
environment, if you will. And then, so after you got your uh, engineering degree from uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, you went to work for Ford? Correct. And how many years were you there? I was there about 15 months. Oh, okay. And then after that, it was? A company called Amphenol, which is in the electrical connector world. Oh, okay. How long were you there? I was there, I think it was almost three years. Okay, so another large company. Ampinol's a Real, big, yeah, yeah. big company. Yep. So what were some of the things that you learned, right, through those two experiences of working at a large corporation? I think the first was that you really didn't like working for a large corporation, That's which important. I think was a really important lesson learned. Um, at Ford, uh, I was actually a manufacturing supervisor, so I had 16 hourly people that, that reported to me. And it was a really unique learning experience because just learning how to deal with people that you had to treat everybody fairly, but you didn't necessarily have to treat them the same because different people responded to different stimuli. They responded to different reward systems. Those types of things I found to be very, very important in, in, a, in a great learning experience because, you know, it is all about the people ultimately when it comes down to, you know, whether you're growing a business or operating a business is the quality of the people that you have and, and the work that they do. So a lot of that was what I learned. When I went to Amphenol, I took a lot of that learning and, and I think that was that was even further enhanced. But what was great was I had a I had a couple of, of guys who were who were there that really I'll say took me under their wing. I mean it was the controller of the division, it was the head of sales and, and one of the senior marketing guys. And I got exposed to this other world of the business, meaning I had been on the, you know, engineering and operations side and now got exposed to the, the business side of the business. And I was lucky enough that they, they cared uh, to take some time to, to explain that. And I mean, the, the, the controller and I would literally every Tuesday night, uh, he'd give me an hour, hour and a half of his time before he went home to just answer my questions that I had accumulated during the week about, whether it was finance or whether it was the books or whether it was some other aspect of the operations. Right, right. So I was that was really my time when I got really exposed to the broader business operation that I had never really had an right. exposure to. So he was sounded like he was sort of a little bit of a mentor to you. Uh, definitely. So we're going to touch on that later in, in our discussion here. So we'll file that away for later. So what was sort of, okay, I've been here long enough. I'm itchy. I want to go do something else. What what sort of triggered that? The so what actually triggered that was the one of my colleagues and I were looking. We we, we looked to buy a business at the time. It was a family owned business. Uh, they were looking to do a transition. Uh, we went started going down that path, and then not quite the eleventh hour, but the the, the founder decided he wasn't going to sell. And though I hadn't burned any bridges at that point, it had gotten into my head that maybe it was time to do something different. And so I took my GMATs and I had always had, you know, as I was going through this and seeing that, and now this idea of buying a business, you know, this idea of entrepreneurship started to, to kind of hit my head. And I said, well, geez, I'd, I'd much rather be my own boss than somebody else <laughs> work for yeah. somebody else. <clears throat> and so when I decided to go back and do my MBA, I ended up back at RPI um, mainly because they had the incubator, the tech park, and in, in, in this very big focus there. And I, I figured if I could kind of get myself immersed there and get some exposure, and I could both, one, figure out if it really was something that I wanted to be involved with, but also, two, uh, make the connections if, if I did want to go down that path. And so that was really the, the time. And the, the, 
the division I was working for at Amphenol was going through a lot of change and turmoil, and it was finally just settling down. And so it was a, it was kind of hard to leave because they were giving me some more responsibility and, and letting me grow there. But I, I just felt it was the right thing to do at the time if I was going to make it to the next level. Sure, sure. That sounds reasonable. So you get your MBA, and then what, what happened after that? Well, I think it was actually during the MBA that was really critical because after at the end of my first semester, a friend of mine was working for a small technology-focused investment bank that had offices here locally in, in the Albany area, but also in New York City and Boston, San Francisco. And I sent him my resume and said, you know, I don't know anything about finance. You know, would they take, a, would they take someone as an intern and yeah. so I could learn this? And I ended up interviewing with someone, got a job, and, and actually that, that group was actually doing, you know, ostensibly merchant banking, which is really kind of a blend of investment banking and, and, and venture capital. Uh-huh. And so it was really my first exposure to the investing side. And I did that for four or five months. I ended up taking actually a full-time job while still doing my MBA full-time in equity research, so covering public companies in, uh, on, on that side, which I didn't really like, but I really had loved the investing in the venture side of the business. And I was lucky that that group had raised a small pool of money uh, in the time I was in, in, in equity research, and they hired me in, back into that group to help run that small pool of capital, invest that small pool of capital. And then that turned into actually starting a, a venture capital fund right after I graduated from, with my MBA. So that all of what you just talked about really blossomed from an internship. Correct. Right. Correct. And, it, and you know, I joked around that, you know, my master negotiating skills, I got them to pay for my dry cleaning and my parking um, because I just want I you know, they didn't have a budget. And so right. I just wanted to get the experience and be able, again, figure out, was it something that fit with what I wanted to do? And then if so, now I've got, you know, I've got that on my resume. Right. Right. Yeah. I think uh, oftentimes people think of internships as, well, it's just something that I do. But they're very often life changing, very much so. Right, so I, I I think they're they're really great experiences for for people to undertake to either help them decide whether it's something they want to do or help them decide it's something they don't want to do. I was just going to say life changing potentially in both ways, meaning they sent them down the path they really want to go down or help them avoid something right. they didn't want to do. Right. And in an internship, it's sort of a short period of time. So it's easy to exit gracefully, so to speak. But I think what's amazing, even at the fund, at the venture fund, we had, I think, eight summer interns. They all did it for no pay. They did it as independent studies over the summer and got credit for it. And six of the eight got jobs in the venture world when they graduated their, their business with right. their business degree. Right. And so it, it not only allowed them to figure out what they wanted to do, but more importantly, it really did open doors for them and gave them a, a, a bit of a stamp of credibility when they went and had interviews as they were going through that process their second year. Right. So you guys started this venture fund, uh, focused on investing. What type of companies? So was so we had we had spun the fund out of the investment bank, and the investment bank itself had done a number of investments off of their balance sheet. And it really focused on broadly on information technology, so software, software as a service, internet type stuff, and then also energy related technology, so clean tech or new energy, whatever you want to call it. But you know things in the in the fuel cell, in the solar, and other industries like that. So we we used that track record to raise the fund. So we had a very similar thesis around the new fund and how we we're going to put the money out. And ultimately, did about two thirds of the money into IT deals. And about a third, broadly speaking, into energy deals. So some of those energy deals were software, but they were software for the energy industry. But some of them were 
hardcore material science type things that had you know opportunities to change uh, change markets. So what what's a day in a life of a venture capital person? <laughs> it uh, it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, I always get asked that question, and the reality is is that depending on the life cycle of the fund. And also just depending on the stages and status of the different companies, both that are in the pipeline to look at, as well as the ones that you've done and you're helping work and help grow, you could have a day that you're all on raising the fund. You can have a day that you're all on doing due diligence on a deal. You could have a day that you're all on, you know, working and speaking with your, doing investor relations with your, your limited partners um, to make sure that they're happy and they've got the information that they need. Um, and then there's other days that you're doing all of those things plus plus five others. So it is a very unique job in that respect in that you're not coming into work knowing what you're necessarily going to do that day. Uh, most often than not, you had a plan and that plan got put aside because something happened or something came up or you just had to go and deal with it. So what was great was that you got exposed to these different things, got exposed to fundraising, whether it was for the fund or for your portfolio companies, you got exposed to negotiating deals, you got exposed to evaluating business models and technologies and people and teams and things like that. You got exposed to investor relations and marketing and understanding how to how to cultivate relationships uh, so that even though this investor might not have came into fund one, they might come into fund two. And you figure out which of those things you do well and you figure out which of those things your partners do well and, and you try to divvy those up so that the ones that you might not do as well and one of your partners does well, maybe he, he or she takes the lead on those and, and you take second fiddle. But that's about working in a partnership, and I think that's another thing that's an interesting takeaway when you when you came out of a corporate world and now you're working with a group of people that you call your partners. That's also a very different dynamic um, when it comes to decision making and when it comes to setting strategy, when it comes to doing those types of things. So there's a lot of stuff you just said there. I want to unpack a few of those things. Sure. One of the things I think you said is that starting a venture fund is like starting any other business. That's correct. You, you sort of have to have a plan and a strategy. And you have to go raise capital. That's exactly right. Right? So you have to go talk to potential investors who fundamentally give you their money for then you to invest it That's in other companies. And your product, when you're pitching those investors, your product is both your track record. So have you done it and done it successfully? And your product is the strategy you have going forward and, and convincing them that not only are the areas and types of deals that you're going to be focused on the right ones for the because you're looking into the future you're looking at your crystal ball and saying this is how we think the world's going to evolve and this is why we're we're going to be focused on these types of deals but then it's also your ability to find those deals it's your ability to ultimately close those deals it's your ability to work with and grow those deals because that's a really big piece of this you know a lot of people talk, they talk about venture capital and they talk about it as a finance job and I always correct people that this is not a finance job past adding and subtracting to to build a, a simple model the reality is this is a business growth job this is figuring out what's the right strategy this is figuring out when you've got it wrong and how quickly you can recover and and try again this is figuring out the members of the team and are they the right members of the team and and as time goes by are they still the right members of the team and how do you continue to grow the business so all those things trump a lot of times the, 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 the numbers, where you get into private equity and things like that, it's, it's a financial engineering game. But in the venture world, this is about how do you figure out how to grow this business as quickly as possible. And, and, and that's very unique when it comes to any type of job that's out there. 
So that's certainly been my experience as well, being in the in the venture business. It's 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 a great potpourri of a whole blend <laughs> of skills that you have to have, and at any one point in time, that skill set could be absolutely critical. But at a different part of the life cycle of the venture fund, it's not important at not all. Not important at all. Exactly right. right. But it's one of the key point. things you do is you invest in companies. So as a person who sort of is looking at uh, investing in companies, what's one or two of the key things that you look for? and making an, a positive investment decision? I think number one on every investor's list is the people that are around the deal, meaning the founders, the management team. And and sometimes this is hard to learn, but understanding first and foremost that they are good people, right? So smart is a given, passionate is a given, right? But they have to be good people. We've dealt with a lot of, uh, I'll just to put it simply, we've dealt with a lot of bad entrepreneurs and bad founders and bad management teams and meaning that they're just they weren't they didn't share the same values they didn't share the same sort of code of ethics as we did and what we found was that when that happened you never have a good deal because you're never on the same page about how you think you want to grow the business or about how you're going to spend the money or about any of those things so finding a really good team that shares your vision for the business that shares with each other the goals and aspirations that they have for what they want the business to be and not trying to shoehorn your view with their view together because that just doesn't work. So that's first and foremost. We have to really like the team. They have to be smart. They have to be passionate, but they have to really share those values. I think the second is it's got to be a really unique, differentiated opportunity. And whether it's differentiated in the technology or whether it's differentiated in the business model, it has to be something that really changes the way that something happens today because small companies, the hardest part that they have is selling customers because they don't know who you are, right? If the choice is between buying product X from small company or product Y from IBM, most people are risk averse and they're going to buy the IBM product. So you have to have something that is truly different. It's truly different to the customer. It's truly different in the way the customer buys or, or views the purchase process. But it has to be massively different uh, for us to get excited. If it's just a me too, if it's just a little bit better, if it's just a slightly different flavor than what's out there, it's not going to get us excited about it. Um, and then there's all the other stuff around, you know, I, I think less about competition because I think if you've got something really unique, you'll figure out how to outsmart. You have to know what's going on there, but you can figure out how to outsmart. I, I, I worry less about the exact finances because again if you've got something unique you're going to be able to get a premium price you're going to be able to do those things if i think about the two core things those are the two core things i think about once you've made the investment what's sort of your role with a company post investment so we took a and my philosophy is to take a very hands-on approach but hands-on in areas where we can be helpful meaning i used to always joke around that if you ever saw me running one of my portfolio companies it means things have gone horribly horribly wrong right um the reality is that I tried to focus where I could be. So I, I helped I helped be a, a trusted advisor to to the CEO and to the to the senior team so that they could truly run things past and strategize and think about uh, what needs to happen next. I got always involved in the in fundraising discussions because we had good networks where we could introduce them to new investors. We knew what those investors looked for. We helped them craft their investor pitches to to say the things correctly the way that that got people excited about it so we always helped every one of my companies i've always helped them raise the next round of capital or the next rounds of capital 
um, and bring that together. I personally always got involved because I not only did I like it, but I think I had a perspective on it is in setting sort of the, the strategy. So whether it's sales strategy or market strategy, but helping the company. One of the key things in early stage businesses is really focusing the business. Companies that tried to do Right. If they were talking about selling in any place other than the United States and any to anyone other than a, a very specific subset of customers, I always got really nervous about. But helping them figure out where the right geographies were, what the right markets, which subset of customers under in, inside those markets made the most sense early on. And then they could build from there. I always got involved there because that's really a lot of times the difference between a win and a fail. A lot of companies that didn't make it in our portfolio didn't make it because they picked the wrong market or they picked the wrong customer set within that market or they they defined the product wrong because they didn't understand those other things. It wasn't because the product didn't work. It wasn't because there wasn't a market there. It was because they went about it the wrong way, burned through the money, and then weren't able to recover afterwards. So how, how large was this venture fund from uh, people, partners, and associates and stuff? We had three senior partners, two junior partners, and at on average, two to three associates. So less than 10 employees. Yeah. So really a small business. Yeah, a very, very much small so. Business. So I want to go back to your large company experience for a second. So how did your uh, what you learned at Ford and Amphenol help you in being part of this small company? That's a really good question. <laughs> so here's the reason I asked that question to give you a second or two to think, right? There's this, uh, I think, sometimes dilemma that people who, who want to pursue entrepreneurial careers have. Do I blaze off on my entrepreneurial career right out of school, right? Or do I go work in another, inst- another company, whether it be a large company or maybe another entrepreneurial company for four or five years and then blaze out on my own. So that's why I'm trying to ask, that's why I asked that question, sort of what, what were the valuable things that you learned that you were able to bring to this entrepreneurial experience? I think, you know, sometimes the, your, your, your fails help guide you. Absolutely. And, and though I wouldn't, consider either my experiences at Ford or Amphenol failures, but some of the things that I saw that I didn't didn't like were probably more that what shaped me versus the things that worked, just because a lot of the things that worked were big company things, right? But decision-making time frame, you know, I would just see what seemed to me obvious decisions that should be made at these places, and they would take weeks to months to make them yeah, because there was a bureaucracy. Well, it was a sense of urgency, but there was also a bureaucracy that you had to go through. Right. Um, you know, I tell the story sometimes at one of the jobs that I put in a, I did a whole report about a new piece of equipment we were buying. And because the report literally wasn't thick enough, it got sent back and I had to just add paper to this report because they viewed that if it, you're asking for $500,000 for a piece of equipment, it didn't matter how good the report was. If you didn't give them a three-inch thick binder, right. they didn't think you did your homework. $1,000 a page. Right? And so, you know, it was things like that that frustrated me. And I looked at it and said, there's got to be a better way of, of doing this. And for big companies to change, you know, rarely do they make that change from the inside out. It usually happens from the outside in, meaning there's some event happens that shocks the system and they then have to go and and make changes to it. And so that's, I think, part of it was, you know, probably first me being 
probably having a little bit too much hubris and thinking that I could do it better on my own. Um, but then also realizing that there are certain things that are done for, for a reason. You know, there are, there, there, you know, some of that bureaucracy wasn't necessarily all bad. So, you know, picking out the pieces that say, well, and if we have to make a decision that looks like this, maybe we don't need everybody to chime in, but making a decision that looks, you know, like this, maybe we want to have everybody's input. I think it helped in guiding our team and how we ultimately debated opportunities as well. So we were able to have pretty severe disagreements about an opportunity or an investment or whatever it happened to be, but still understand that we were having that in the context of making a good decision and not not taking it personally, I guess, is maybe the best way to say it. And I think that some of the experiences I had at Ford and Amphenol kind of played into that where there were there were some really good people that 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 was what it was about. It was about advancing the product. It was about advancing the process. It was about advancing whatever the customer's uh, initiative. It wasn't about the personalities around the table. And then, like I said earlier on, you know, just dealing with people, just dealing with all kinds of different personalities. I mean, I dealt with, at Amphenol, I dealt with everyone from the machinists on the floor all the way up to the chairman of the board of the overall company. Um, and knowing all the different ways you have to communicate and even a little bit of the politics that you have to have in there. All those, I think, played important, not only in how we managed our partnership, but also then ultimately how we worked with the companies that we invested in and acted as a board member and things of that nature. So after uh, the first Albany Venture experience, one of the other things you did is you joined Plug Power. Correct. Sort of a, what did I say, medium-sized public company? Is that the small right public company, small I'd say. Pub- okay, small public company. What was your role there and what did you do there? I went on, actually had wore two hats. I was vice president for investor relations. So that hat had me working with both the analysts that covered the stock. So all the investment bankers and the analysts that work for them, you know, they have the buy, hold, sell ratings on the stock. And so I worked not only with the existing analysts that were covering the stock, but actually grew the list from three to uh, seven at the time I left. So brought in and brought in, I believe, much higher quality names because there's a just like in any space, there's lower quality and higher quality firms that can follow you. And that directly related to the other half of that that job, which was finding and courting and hopefully converting uh, investors to buy the stock because the 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 stock itself was very what they call heavy retail held meaning Bela and Johnny owning 150 shares in their in their IRA versus Fidelity owning 150 million shares in their in their portfolio and so worked on that as well so this was about working on how do we approach them how do we tell the story how do we do those things that would get them excited and then mapping it against those investors so we'd work with the analysts on that we'd work on our own and we'd triangulate all that stuff to increase the institutional ownership to increase the visibility of the stock which what the help there is that when good news comes out then you get you get better response to that and then the other role i had was what we called vp of strategic marketing but what was a lot of uh really corporate development work so i worked a lot on strategy um it was great actually having both hats because it was it tied into how we told the story and how we focused the business on what areas we were going to go after and where the growth areas were. But I also did all the M&A for the company. I did a couple of deals for them, uh, a couple of purchases that we did, as well as looked at partnerships and, and worked with partners, whether they were technology or market or whatever, to identify 
whether those made sense or whether getting into different markets made sense, et cetera. So it was a really interesting job because they, though they seemed like two very different things, there was a lot of intersection between the two because what I was doing on the strategy side had a direct impact on how we told the story to the to the street. And I can really see, particularly on the M&A side, how your venture background helped in that. Very much so, very much so. And I think one of the key ones, and uh, the CEO would tell you that, was um, – you know, in the venture world, you have to say no more than you say yes. And when I say more, I mean a lot more. So, you know, every 200 deals you see, you're only saying yes to one or maybe two of those deals. You know, it's the same thing when you've got Plug Power did fuel cells. They were one of the only public companies at the time that had a real commercial business. They were in the press a lot. And so they were a high profile name. So we got a lot of people that would contact us. So if you didn't have someone who's used to saying no, they could get bogged down pretty quick. And so triaging what came in, the ability to do that, and then ultimately the ability to structure a deal, understanding that a lot of these were earlier stage and understanding what was going on at the time because of my venture background was hugely helpful. And you've also done some consulting. Talk a little bit about that experience and and how that is different from these other experiences. It's completely different. And it's actually... I mean, that's the smallest business, right? It's a one-person business. One-person business. Um, it's, It's the hardest... And I'll tell you the reason it's it's the hardest. Well, it, one reason it's the hardest because you're always selling because you have to make sure that you've got enough enough work to to, to pay the bills. But the, the other hard part is I mentioned before when we one of the key things that we really pound into our entrepreneurs and, and the companies we invested in was about focus and and the value of focusing in on a market, a customer, right. When you're a consultant, you're by definition fairly unfocused and you're also by definition, you only can get in so many layers deep into the clients that you're working with because you're brought in to do a very specific job. And sometimes that job is just to be a, an advisor to the to the CEO and help them be someone who's outside of the forest and helps them see the trees. Other times it's a very specific assignment, you know, whether it's helping them with a fundraise or whether it's uh, doing a specific market research or, or market analysis or any of those types of things. And so I think the hard part for me is that I like to really get involved. And I've and even as part of doing the consulting, I do now have one client where it's turned into something very different, um, where we're actually um, spending a lot more time in there. I'm spending a lot more time with them. And we're spending a lot more time on different projects within within this organization. And so that's uh, that's actually turned into something interesting. But I think the hardest part is just the fact that they're sort of transient in that in that way. Now, earlier you mentioned spending time on uh, one night a week, whatever it was, learning about finance and being mentored. So talk to a little bit about what role mentors have played in your life. I've been lucky that I've had, whether it's whether they knew it or not, <laughs> a number of people that I would consider great mentors because each one took on slightly different roles. And, you know, some just gave really good sage advice and some, you know, were almost the daily affirmation when, when you're kind of felt you painted yourself in a corner or when you were down a little bit, they'd help build you back up again and just help you go out and fight the next day. And some were, were folks who just opened up doors that never could have been opened up um, for you and and created really unique opportunities. And each one of those people, you know, I look back and I, I probably would miss some as I think about it, but one of them was great. And she, she I always quote her because it was her grandmother that told her this, but I would say, oh, you know, this thing happened. We got lucky. And she'd be like, you make your own luck. She was always great at just boiling it down to these really pithy 
comments that put it all in perspective. And it was, and part of that is if you're not in the game, there's, you don't have a chance to win. Right. And her point was, you know, the fact that you're playing is the fact that you, you, you got the opportunity. And I just think about that a lot because it really colors my view is I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to put the effort in, willing to put the work in, willing to take the shots on goal to do that. But none of those work out unless you have people that, that have a vested interest in at you and what you're doing and, yes. and, and where you're going with that. And some of those people were coworkers of mine. Some of those people had absolutely nothing to do with the businesses I was in, but, but just took an interest in me for whatever reason. Um, and I try to hopefully, uh, you know, if I had a chance and continue to have chances to pay that back. There, there's been a lot of articles about mentors and the importance of mentors, uh, having mentors in your life. How do you find one? Well, sometimes they just show up on your doorstep. Um, but then you have to recognize that's what it is. But that's but exactly right. And, and in any of these things, I, I might have made it sound a little bit easier than it was because I think all these relationships have to be managed. You know, just because, you know, you, if you recognize someone who could who could be helpful and who could have that relationship, because being a mentor is not just saying, oh, that guy could help open that door over there for me. It's understanding that that person is more than that, that they're going to be an advisor. They're going to be someone that that is a friend, that is a right, that takes that level. But it does need to be managed. You can't call someone a mentor but only talk to them once a year. You can't call someone a mentor and not involve them in certain aspects of your career and your life that they need to be involved with. And you can't call yourself a mentor unless you're willing to, to do those things, right? If you're just willing to have a cup of coffee every once in a while and, and pontificate about the state of the world, that's not being a mentor. That's being an interesting guy to talk to over coffee. You know, I think that there's effort on both sides. And a lot of times it just, you know, you might identify someone and you say, oh, they'd be a great mentor. But for whatever reason, whether it's personality click or whether it's time or whether it's just the, the wrong opportunity, it, it might not work out. Yeah, it's a relationship. Because it, it ultimately is a relationship. And so I think you also, just like with any of these things, you have to make a decision fairly early on is, are they going to be helpful? Are they into this and not try to force it? Because if you're trying to make them be your mentor and they don't want to be your mentor for whatever reason, it's never going to work out. So you just have to, you have to be honest about that. But there isn't, there is active. And, and listen, I've, I know people who have been a lot more active about it where they said, you know, that person needs to help me out with this. And they go and they target them and they convince them that they've got the opportunity here to, to, to be someone who's high potential and they should spend their time with them. Um, but I think it is an active relationship. I don't think it's a passive relationship. Yeah. Very nice. I agree. I agree very wholeheartedly. So, John, you, you've seen a lot of startups and small companies, uh, either who are seeking venture funding or are looking to be acquired by a larger company in their plug power days. So what's sort of the top three pieces of advice that would you give to a founder or, or, uh, or someone who's running a small business? If they're looking to get acquired or they're looking to raise venture capital. I say one is you, you want to really... You want to think about the team. Now, whether you have them all in place or not doesn't matter, but you want to make sure that you have the plan and that you want to align what you're thinking with that plan with the investors or the acquirer in this, in whichever case, because it turns out they're not all that dissimilar when you think about how, how this is. And the reason for that is you don't want to have, whether they end up being co-founders or whether they end up being just senior members of your team who have very different views of you of when to exit, why to exit, if to exit, or other strategic decisions around that. So, I, you know, I, I mentioned team a few times, but it, it really is critically important because if I go into a meeting and I see 
a team that's very obviously on different pages. The the discuss whether it's on an M and A side or or right, it's just the discussion's not going to go much further. I think the second is making as much progress as humanly possible in the shortest period of time. And when I say progress, the definition of that is is very situational, meaning every, every company it's a little bit different. But the the key piece of it is showing that there's customers out there that care, that you're solving a real problem for them, that you that you can get them to part with some of their cash and actually pay pay real money for whatever it is that you're doing or providing to them. The more you can do that, or in the clean tech world, it was less about that and it was more about proving that it actually worked. And people think that, well, we got it to work in the lab was enough. And the reality is, is when it comes to financing complex systems, when it comes to people buying complex systems, they want to know that they can just plug it in and they're not going to have to think about it again. When you think about plug power and they struggled for years and years and years because they were selling fuel cells to their customers. When they finally switched and sold a complete solution to their customers that included fuel and service and everything else, the business took off. And it was the difference between selling a product and selling a solution. It was the difference between being nice and being critical. And it was the difference between being difficult to adopt and being easy to adopt. The more of those things that you can prove that you figured them out, or at least mostly figured them out, the easier the conversation is on the other side. And then the last piece of advice I'd have is, you know, try to get more than one bidder. You know, I always say that an auction is a lot more fun if there's more than one person in the audience. Um, the reality is that this is just like any sales game. This is a sales game, right? And in any sales pipeline, you've got to have 100 customers that turn into 50 opportunities that ultimately turn into, you know, a handful of sales. And it's the same thing here when you're raising money, when you're going to exit your business, you've got to be out making sure that you're talking to the right potential investors or buyers, um, but that there's enough of them at the table that you get two or three or four term sheets, because that's when you're able to negotiate the best deal for yourself. And the best deal doesn't necessarily mean the best valuation. It might mean the best fit for the company. It might be in the best uh, uh, expertise around the table to help your business grow. It might mean the, the networking contacts that those people bring. So you have to look at that situation holistically, but I guarantee you're not in the catbird seat if you only have one term sheet. Yeah, great advice. Great advice, John. So one of the fascinating things about your, your career, as we've discussed it here, is you've done a whole bunch of different things. They're sort of loosely related or maybe more than loosely related, but uh, really a, a wide spectrum of working for large companies, working for small companies, doing a startup, having a major role in a small public company. So what advice would you give to others who are contemplating making a career change? I think the first thing is I would probably, <laughs> I got a little bit lucky <laughs> in that, um, again, you make your own luck, but if I sent my resume to my buddy and they didn't have an internship open, I didn't have plan B. I just took a shot. As I've gone through this now, you know, as I've made transitions out of the fund and to other things, I've really thought through a number of things as both, one, the things that I like to do and what are important to me and what gets me excited. I, I now have my three simple rules for anything, which is I have to be able to make an impact. I have to be learning something every day and I have to have fun. And if any one of those rules gets violated, I don't, I just don't do it because life's too short and I know that I have to be motivated by what I'm working on or else I'm not, I'm just not interested. 
But I think narrowing down the list and having a bit more of a plan, but being really flexible with that plan. You know, I use as an example in the venture world, my, my former partner at, at FA, when he graduated from HBS, he didn't have a job. You know, it's because he had decided he was going to be a venture capitalist. It wasn't a choice. And venture capitalists don't recruit. <laughs> they don't go to the career fairs, right? They go, oh, we need another associate tomorrow. And then they go look for him. And so he went without a job for six months after he graduated because he had started early in his second year. But it took a, you know, a while because he came out of – he was actually very similar background to me. He came out of a manufacturing operations background. He was switching careers and he made this decision to do this. But it took a while. But he decided and he took a job that he was – underpaid. But within a year and a half, he was a partner in this fund and he was now growing and he was doing the things that he did. Um, so you have to be willing, I think, if you can find the thing that you're passionate about, if you do your homework and you have a plan around doing that. There was a great guy who was, um, was actually an investor in FA. Um, he passed away, unfortunately. But when he graduated business school, he actually, he sent, he picked, he looked at the map and circled all the cities that he would was willing to live in. And then within all those circles, he found all the different companies, all the different interesting companies and narrowed it down to the ones he found the most interesting. It ended up being 50 or 60 companies. Yes, yes. And he sent letters to all the CEOs of those companies and said, I'll work for you for free for three months because I don't know if I like you and you don't know if you like me, but this is a great way for us to get to, to know each other. And yes. ultimately became one of the senior executives at Liberty Media because of that. Now, they couldn't, he couldn't work for free, but he worked for minimum wage for three months. Right. And then they figured out that they loved each other and he became one of the one of the, the, the senior executives there. And it's just it was a great story of, you know, you, getting your foot in the door is different than knocking on the door. Right. And that was just a great way of getting the foot in the door. And so having a plan around doing that, make, willing to maybe make a few sacrifices to do that, to then figure out, is this something that you're really going to be passionate about? I think that's the best advice I could give yeah, because excellent. it's hard to switch careers. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, what's next in the John Kokosha journey? That's a good question. <laughs> working with a couple of, like I mentioned before, working with one client who's now turning into a couple of partners where we're rethinking the way that we get involved with, whether it's an early stage startup or whether it's something that's more in the growth stage. But in the way that we get involved, we got very different backgrounds, operations, sales, uh, strategic um, but we've got a thought of how we can go in and be a better board, be a better layer of the management team, be a way to help them identify and, and raise capital, be more patient and more understanding of the situation that those companies are in and not necessarily have to follow the normal VC playbook of getting out in three years or four years or five years or not necessarily having to do growth at all costs or not necessarily having, but really looking at the companies and understanding the underlying value and turning that into that. And so we're at the very early stages of that, but it's it's really exciting. We're having some fun. We're, we're getting some deal flow and, and that'll be the next chapter. Maybe we'll come back in a year and talk about that. So Yeah, fabulous. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to do that. I'll... I'll uh make a, a note to myself to make sure I call you up in a year and get an update. So thank you, John. Thanks for taking time out of your busy day to spend uh, this 45 minutes with me and helping us understand your background and sharing that with our audience. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. So one of the things that really struck me in my conversation with John was this notion of internships and how important internships can be 
And John certainly gave some examples of how he used internships to help get him some experience and make some connections. And I think the takeaway from that was not only are internships important, but they always lead to something. They either lead to you figuring out this is a great company and a great sort of business and industry I want to work in, or this is not a place that I want to work. And either of those are great learning opportunities that you can get from an internship. What's your experience with internships, Mike? Well, I agree with your general premise. And I can tell you that in all my years of 25 years of teaching at universities, that students always come at the beginning of the new semester in the fall, and it's always great to see them. And I said, hey, how was your internship? And most of the time they say, oh, I loved it. I learned a lot. I met a lot of people. I'm like, that's great. Good for you. And then, you know, a quarter of them say, I absolutely hated it. There's never anything in the middle. It's always one extreme or the other. I hated it. I hated every minute of it. And you know what I say? Good for you. Did you figure out why you hated it? And they'd be like, hmm. So let's break this down a little bit. And, you know, was it the person that you worked for? So did you learn something about the type of boss or leader that you don't want to work for or that you don't want to be like? Was it the organization, the type of company, the industry it was in, the size it was in, the type of customers? Or was it the functional area that you're in? Do you really, you thought you were going to be a finance person, you really didn't like doing the finance stuff. So if you can kind of figure that out, that's just great information for your next set of decisions. So I think internships are a great source of things that you can take away that are positives and things that are negatives that you can learn from. And yeah, you always get something because I'm only like, did you meet somebody interesting? And they always say, oh, yeah, of course I met this person and she was really neat and she was from France. And I uh, hung out with this guy from from California and there was this one manager in another department and we went out for coffee a couple times. And I think that'll be a good mentor. So even when you have a bad internship, you always meet some cool people. I've never in 25 years met somebody who said, I, listen, I had this internship. It was horrible. I didn't meet a single interesting person. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to think about internships, Mike. Uh, the one other comment I'll make is that it's amazing to me how many students who go on internships actually then get hired by the company. And I think that a lot of people don't realize, but an internship is really the ultimate job interview for both parties, right? So both for the company getting a really good look at this person's skills, their motivation, their drive, and for the prospective employee, really getting a good look at the company to say, is this the type of organization I want to be part of? Do I want to work here? So I think there's lots and lots of value of internships. Yeah. And just to add on that, um, it's important because, you know, yes, big companies have these formal internship programs, but I've talked a lot of people that I've met, alumni, friends, that are small business people into taking an intern because they can really help. And a low payroll output can really bring some extra help on board to a small company that's running lean. I think interns can be a really nice part of a lean startup approach. Um, and in fact, um, I'm getting a visit here in Germany in three weeks from a friend of, of, uh, of mine, longtime friend who owns a market research business. And she, uh, we talked about this and she actually hired a Clarkson student for an internship in the summer over 10 years ago. And that person has gone on to be one of, you know, really the the second person in command at this company and really as somebody who's been a valued and trusted source. So out of that internship where our friend was like, oh, I don't have a program. I can't train her. I it's like, no, give her some tasks, make time to kind of supervise and give her some guidance, get some feedback from her and it'll be fine. 
And, and it was. And even though they didn't have an HR person at the time and this and that and the other, you really can do some neat things with an intern. There's boundaries. There's limits to what they can do. You need to pay them. I know some people do this unpaid internship thing um, morally, flatly against it. Um, but I think you can really even small companies that don't have formal internship programs can think about it. And, hey, talk to either at Clarkson or uh, any school that you have a connection with. Talk to their career center. They can help you set it up. They can even give you some guidance on how to be a good supervisor, essentially, or a good employer of interns. Um, it's a win-win. Yeah, agreed. The other thing that, that struck me, a comment that John made, was this notion of selling a solution to your customer not just a product. And he talked about that in the context of plug power, which makes uh, fuel cells, which generate electricity, right? So it's an alternative way of generating electricity. And he said in the beginning that plug power sold fuel cells and the customer had to integrate it into their facility. They had to run electrical wires, blah, blah, blah. What the customer just wants is electricity, <laughs> So that's that's what they want to buy. They don't want to buy a fuel cell. They want to buy lower priced electricity. And John said it wasn't until plug power actually would come in and fundamentally provide an electrical cable that they could plug right in to their the, the factory's electrical grid. And they provided that solution. And outside of the building, plug power did all of the construction, all of the all of the integration work so that the customer was getting electricity, which is what they wanted. They happened to be getting it from a fuel cell, which has a lot of good features to it. But the customer was really not interested in buying a fuel cell and then figuring out how to integrate it into their electrical system. So another great lesson that often I see in, in small young companies where they're selling a piece of technology that the company then needs to take or their customer then needs to take and go through a whole bunch of additional work to either integrate it into their systems or to use it in a productive way. It makes it way easier to make the sale when you don't have to educate the customer on what a fuel cell is. They don't care. They want cheap, reliable, safe, ideally environmentally friendly electricity at a low price, right? That's right. it. You don't need exactly. to get into the technical background. And I mean, some people want to know this, but figure out what the problem is and use your technology to solve the problem, not just sell them the technology. It's great. And I, we, I think we've both seen a lot of startups where they don't get that. And this is the first pivot, right? This is version 2.0, where they take the technology and then they say, aha, I get it now. And I have to turn it into a useful service that meets cust specific customer needs. Yeah, I think another interesting point was uh, John's an example of uh, one of these entrepreneurs that after he graduated, went to work for a large company, right? He worked for Ford Motor Company. Mm -hmm. And then he worked for Amphenol, which is another large company. Then he went and got his MBA. And then he sort of blazed out at small entrepreneurial companies. So what are your thoughts on this whole notion of when do you get your MBA? Do you get an MBA? Upon graduation, should you start your business? Should you go to work for a larger company? What are your thoughts on that, Mike? Well, one of the things that I've learned from all these interviews that we've done so far, Bela, is that there is more than one way to become an entrepreneur. There's plenty of great stories. If you know Warby Parker, the eyeglass company, those were people that met uh, and disrupted the eyeglass industry during their MBA. And right after their MBA, they boom, they went and started it and were very successful. There's lots of stories like this. But getting an MBA is a big time commitment and it's an expensive commitment as well. A lot of people go into debt to do this. And that's money and time you could be using to start your business. So I think 
I don't want to say it's a bad idea because many people have followed the path, but I think don't automatically think that, oh, I, I need to go get my MBA so I can start a business, especially if you've got business experience and business background. I think the MBA is in many ways better for the networking and the people that you meet than actually the stuff that you learn sometimes. A little bit of both, but I think there's many paths. And I think, again, for some people, the right answer isn't go get an MBA. It's, hey, go work for a small company. Go work for a startup. You're getting paid, maybe not market value, but you're getting paid and you're getting much more hands-on real experience and building a network of customers and suppliers and potential sources of capital. So that's kind of my sense is I think it's an interesting path. I don't think it's the, the cheapest path are the fastest path, but it's certainly a path. What do you think? So I think it goes back to, there's a lot, a lot of different paths, as you said, to being an entrepreneur or starting an entrepreneurial business. We've seen people that are mid late career, right? They spend 20, 30 years working at a large corporation or several large corporations, and then they blaze off in an entrepreneurial endeavor and they're very successful. You see people that are don't even go to college, right? Right out of high school or even before high school, right? They start a business and they're very successful. Yep. So there's a wide spectrum here. There is no one recipe for doing this in a certain way. You have to figure out what works for you. And the good news about this is that the opportunity is available at many, many points during your life. It's not just, oh, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be under 30. No way. Or you have to have 30 years of experience to be a successful entrepreneur. Or you have to go to Stanford. You have to go to Harvard, right? Right. MIT. Right. Doesn't matter. Exactly, right? There's lots and lots of paths and opportunities. So the doors are always open for you to kind of take that step. And that's the important part, as we said in one of our other podcasts, is taking that step uh, and making that commitment and actually you know, making some progress towards it. So that's sort of how I think about it. There is no one right way of doing it. Cool. Let me uh, switch topics on you, Bela. And I thought one thing that was interesting that John talked about was this idea of finding the right people and team and that shared values and shared ethics was even more important than being smart or having in-depth experience. What do you think? Are values and ethics more important than your technical know-how of your team? So I think... One of the observations I'll make is that you have to figure out what's the foundation for your business and your life. What are the three or four or five things that are really important to you? I think in any relationship and being in business is a relationship. It's a relationship with a bunch of people and it's interacting with a bunch of people. And I think if you have a common or a relatively common set of values that enables you and empowers you to focus on moving the business forward and not necessarily having these sort of philosophical debates about is that ethical or not ethical. You sort of are com have common ground on that. So I think it really is important. I, I think it's important that you sort of think about those. And, I, and I'll give you an example. I, I remember we Back in my VC days, we looked at investing in a company that was providing a software as a service platform for customers, and they were collecting a whole bunch of data that the customers didn't know they were collecting. And, you know, this goes to the whole privacy issue. And this was probably 10, 12 years ago. It was sort of before the privacy issues got as big as they are these days. But these guys were collecting all this information. And, you know, sort of in their presentation to us, it sort of came up, not as part of the presentation, but just sort of in the conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're collecting all that data. And then we're going to take that data and we're going to sell it to others. And we actually think there's a huge business in that. 
we asked the question, so do the customers know you're doing this? Wouldn't they view this as proprietary information? Yeah, yeah, but we'll strip it out so they won't know, blah, blah, blah. From my perspective, it made that company radioactive. I don't want to invest in them. I don't want to deal with those issues. And so again, it goes back to those shared values and shared ethics. So I think it is important. And I thought that was an excellent point that John made. Yeah, I think people often lose sight of this. And I know I've seen a lot of pitches and there's always slides and discussion about the technical skills and the degrees and the experience and not a lot on the values and ethics that they all share. And I mean, I think that's a neat takeaway for people who are thinking about pitching or talking with somebody about starting a new business or something like that. It's A, building that team and then having those conversations early on about values and ethics and communicating that to stakeholders and potential stakeholders. You know, the other thing that John brought up is this notion of mentors, of finding a mentor and or being a mentor. What's your experience in in that area, Mike? Well, you know, it reminds me of going to a seventh grade dance a lot of times, right? And it can be uncomfortable at times. You can feel like you're the one standing against the wall, you know, looking awkwardly at the rest of the people. But I think mentoring is some of the most valuable time you can spend, either as a mentor or a mentee. And I've certainly been on both ends, and I know you have too. So I do think you have to put yourself out there a little bit and ask, you know, fairly aggressively for um, a little bit of time from people, whether it's over a cup of coffee or a phone call. You're not asking for a lifetime relationship. You're asking for a little bit of advice. And if the person's too busy or they blow you off, okay, that's fine. Look somewhere else or try back again at a later time. And then if it seems to click and you both seem to get something out of that relationship, follow up, craft some good questions and some good reasons to ask for help and, and people will be helpful. So I think it's kind of like this this thing. You got to ask somebody to dance. You got to know when they say no, when it means no. And then you got to do things to keep the relationship up. But I certainly think this idea of recognizing a mentor and managing a relationship with a mentor is natural for some people who are outgoing and naturally gregarious. For a lot of us who are introverted, myself included, it can be a challenge. And work at it. Practice. What do you think? Yeah, I I was impressed by uh, his comments about it. You know, in particular, he was talking about in one of his larger corporate jobs early in his career, I think it was one night a week, he sat down with the CFO to sort of understand how financials worked, right? And what's a P&L statement, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, And John used it as a great learning opportunity. And that CFO contributed his time. So I think the takeaways for me were, number one, whether you're a mentor or you're a mentee, it's work. It's not just sitting around and pontificating for a little while. It's working and it and it takes a fair amount of time and some thought. Uh, I also think it evolves with time. It's not something that you sort of pick somebody out of a lineup and say, okay, I want you to be my mentor. I think you have to sell them to spend time with you to be your mentor. I also think it relates back to the conversation we just had, Mike, about this notion of values, shared values and shared ethics. Because I think that's another important element of having a good mentor-mentee relationship is that you do have some common values, some common ways of thinking about various different issues from an ethics and values perspective, certainly. Certainly, it's an opportunity to bring diversity into, diversity of life experience into that conversation, but I think you're, going, you're, you're probably sharing some common values. 
Yeah, and you know, just a short story. I've had a lot of former students and people related to the university alums and things like that that have both mentored me and that I have mentored. And the art of the follow-up is really critical to keeping these things going. I've had some people where, you know, it just didn't click. And after two or three conversations, it just kind of fizzled out because there was no follow-up on either side. But from a mentee standpoint, the really good mentees follow up with me. Maybe it's only every six months, but they send a note just to say, hi, see how I'm doing. Give me a quick update. Maybe send me an interesting article. And then one of the coolest things I got was from somebody who I spend a lot of time mentoring, sending me a note and say, you know, I just want to thank you for all the, the time that you've spent with me. And, you know, if you have any other, I think I've learned a ton from you and from other people. And if you've got any kind of students um, or young people that could use a little bit of guidance, I have enough time and I'd like to give give it forward, pay it forward a little bit, right? And I think John mentioned at some point paying it back. But that's a really neat thing to do. If you're somebody that's been a good mentee and have had a long-term kind of friendship with somebody, you know, offer to to say, hey, I can I can work with some some people that you might have. Um, and I think that's a nice way to follow up. And on on my end, I always try to look and see, make sure every few months, again, every three or six months, just say, hey, checking in. I don't spend more than 45 seconds on an email. Just say, hey, wondering how you're doing. Everything's great here. If you get a few minutes, give me an update. And again, to keep this going, I think is really important. So the art of the follow-up, I think, is critical. Great advice. Great advice, Mike. Great comments. So let's wrap this up. I think it was uh, an enjoyable podcast for me, certainly, to listen to John and spend some time with him. And your comments, as always, Mike, are always very insightful and helpful in, in helping me think about that conversation that we had. So again, folks, if you like the podcast, always open to hearing your comments. And you can reach us at our email address of bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And also would love to read a few more reviews on iTunes about what you think about the podcast. Spread the good word. Thanks again, and uh, see you in two weeks when we release our next episode.